But as you probably know, because I've told you several times, one of the Christian authors who's been the most influential in my own life is Dallas Willard. And he has a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, in several places, he makes a statement with slightly uh, varying wording, but the same concept, that is really challenging. And he says that the universe is a perfectly safe place for the Christian. And you think, well, no, it's not. How, how can that be true? It's, it's not safe. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. And Dallas Willard maintained that truth all the way to his very death. In fact, even after he was term, terminally uh, um, diagnosed with cancer, he was dying of cancer, and he didn't rescind that. We're all going to die. And his point was this life is useful for preparing us for what is to come, and the Lord is merciful and will help us through whatever is in our path. And so in that sense, your soul, if you are a Christian, is perfectly safe. You're in God's hands, whatever trials may come. Now, James, the author of this book by church history, is reported to have been thrown off the temple and then bludgeoned to death. It's in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and several historians of those first centuries write about this. He did not have an easy end. And one wonders, how was God even using that trial in that moment as this saint of the church was being martyred to prepare him for things to come? Life in God's hands is secure. I mean, nobody gets out of this life alive except, I guess, Elijah and Enoch, right? Those two in the scriptures um, didn't have a physical death from what we can tell. But we know that our life here is short, and we want it to be useful and count for something. And James is teaching us about this. Life is a test of faith, a test to strengthen it like you would work out a muscle. And it's also provides lots of opportunities to grow in character, to grow in spiritual maturity. So there are opportunities for us. And what I want to say is the big idea today is this, something you all know, but sometimes we struggle to hang on to. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. And this, this doesn't mean like a certain part of your life is difficult, and then eventually the golden years are easy. No, quite the opposite. I remember um, if you were here long enough, Trip Prince was a priest on our staff, and I remember him telling me, uh, t- he told us in a sermon about his grandfather's time on his, in his last week of life. He was in hospice care, and he had been a faithful man his entire adult life, served the church, loved the Lord, was a very generous, kingdom-oriented guy, steadfast. And he needed prayer because he was fighting with doubt. Now, this is a man who knew intellectually and knew experientially that God is good, that God has always been with him. And as he was there in his last week, he was being assaulted with thoughts, what if it's all a lie? What if there is no God? What if this is all you get? You've been a fool. You've been chasing a superstition. And it was a real temptation. And he asked Tripp and others to pray for him. He was still being tested on his last week of life. So this life is a test. And people want to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that's one of the objections to faith. People in Jesus' day were asking that about a tower that fell. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's a bad question. Because first of all, Jesus said no one is good but God alone. And what is a bad thing in the hands of a good God? God who can take things and work good for them. We all know the Romans 8.28 passage that God works all things together for good for those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. Our Redeemer takes these things and he uses them. And so James today 
he starts us out in the deep end. I mean, right away, verse 2. By the way, we're on page 1011, 1011 in the Pew Bible, and it is helpful to look at this. James starts us right out with a very sparse introduction. Verse 1, he says, James, servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So James, most scholars think, is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary, who did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, and then after he saw the crucifixion and the resurrection, believed in Jesus and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he was so well-known, he didn't have any credentials. He just simply said, I want to be known as James, servant of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to what he calls the dispersion. You know, the persecution broke out in that first uh, couple of decades after the resurrection in the city, and all but the apostles had to scatter, and persecution was bad. They were taking their property, they were killing people, they were doing all sorts of horrible things. And he was writing to Christians. So first of all, get the context. This is not a message that is sent to people who are rest, like considering wh- what they believe about religion. He's writing to Christians who are suffering, that are, they're being persecuted, they're struggling, they're in, in lots of different ways. And then verse 2, he comes right out, and he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's how he starts. That's verse 2, right away in the deep end, one of the toughest things to wrestle with. Count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. So let me pause right here for a second and say this. What trial are you in? You might not be experiencing persecution, but it wasn't just persecution. It was various kinds of trials, all sorts of things. It might be a health issue. It might be a job situation. It might be a financial thing. It might be a family or a relational tension. What is the trial that you're experiencing right now? And then how are you responding to it? What has your response been? Now, the common responses are these. Fear. If this part of my life is being compromised by this trial, I've got to protect all the rest of the things I care about. And you become fearful that you're going to lose everything. That's a common response. Another one is anger. I had a dream. I had a a plan for my life, and this is messing it up. And you get angry because something that mattered to you is being taken away. Or self-pity. Woe is me. I can't go on, you know, kind of like in Job, curse God and die, like that despairing, terrible reaction. Self-pity is very common when a trial comes. Or envy. Why aren't those other people going through this as well? Am I the only one? I don't like that they're having what seems like an easy time. I want that. I want their story. I don't want my story. And we can fall into envy. Or just simply confusion. I thought God was good. I thought he loved me. I thought he blessed his people. And some people think, I became a Christian because I thought it would make my life easier. And they found quite the opposite, that the Lord actually started challenging things and testing and growing and stressing you. And so there's confusion. I don't understand. But you see, James is writing here because he recognizes an opportunity. These trials are an opportunity for growth. They're an opportunity for faith to emerge, either for the first time or to get stronger or renewed, or even new character traits that are the fruits of the Spirit to begin to emerge in your life. God uses these trials. They're very helpful for discipleship and for maturity. 
One of the authors I read this week, a guy named George Stulak, who is an, a pastor and an author, he wrote the InterVarsity Press commentary on James's um, letter. He told a story from when he was a brand new pastor of a relatively, worldly speaking, successful couple. It was a man named Jim and Marie, and they had two sons. He had been successful in business, had made lots of money. They built a beautiful home out in the country on a, on a road. His two sons were now grown. They were in their 20s, and everything was going well, or so it seemed. And one day, the older son stopped at the mailbox to, to get the mail, and a truck going too fast came up over the hill and crashed in and, and killed him. And then it started like a domino effect of that following year where he then lost his job. He then lost a massive amount of his income and went through this whole year. And the author, George, was describing a conversation he had with with him one time where in passing, the man stopped and he said, you know, in the last year, I've lost my son. I've lost my job. My income has gone down by $20,000 a year. And I've never been happier in my life. Because in that 12-month period, through that suffering, he had nowhere to turn but to God, and God met him in a powerful way. Happy is the wrong word, because those are not happy things. But he had joy and didn't quite have the language to describe that. He was experiencing the joy of the Lord in the midst of loss and suffering. He found God good, even though life is hard. These trials are useful to bring forth faith. So count it joy when you experience these trials of all different kinds. Now, there's a progression in verse 3. James says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and and, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So understand that your life is going to have tests. There, There will be trials that will come that will put you to the test. And and he's saying, let, by the way, there, there's one command for every two verse, verses in James. I mean, the number of imperatives telling you, let, let, it, let the trial have its full effect. Let steadfastness have its full effect. The word steadfastness can be translated as endurance, perseverance. The Greek word is hupomone, and I remember that word because I was using a mnemonic device to remember it. I pictured a hippopotamus moaning as he tried to push through deep water. And it's, that's, it's a good picture because hupomone, endurance, steadfast, it's like slow progress and just grunting it out, pushing through. The trial, you pray to God and he doesn't necessarily fix it right away or at all. He simply says, keep walking with me, I'm with you, and we, we have to push through. Let the steadfastness have its full effect, James commands us. Push through it. Be with God in there. There's a test happening here. There's an opportunity for strengthening and for growth. And then it says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't like that they translated the word as perfect because that sounds like you're somehow going to become sinless. I think it's better to think of it as complete and whole, holistic. Your entire person is becoming God-focused and trusting him and having joy. It's it's, uh, like shalom. It's, It's full goodness. It's a God-centeredness to your entire life that comes out of this steadfastness. And there's, there's a, a process here. Now, I think maybe the word perfect works because there are a lot of parallels between the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and we heard from the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called, and he does say, be perfect in there. Jesus does. And so I think there's this 
push of mat- toward maturity to become like Christ. And so James is picking up some themes, I think, from Jesus' teaching. But there's this progression that happens. There, a trial enters your life, and then you're called to have joyful steadfastness as you press through it, and it is bringing about a kind of comprehensive wholeness to you, to be a person completely full of faith, all aspects of your life. The Apostle Paul picks up this kind of progression as well in Romans 5. Again, talking about suffering, he says, suffering will produce endurance, which will produce character in you, and character will produce hope, and hope does not disappoint. Hope is looking forward to what is to come. It's by having that picture that goes a little bit further that can help us. Now, in the immediate moment when we're suffering the trial, James is saying, ask God for wisdom. If you, if you lack wisdom, ask him. If, at, at verse um, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's pretty direct, right? That's pretty good. And, and, it, and he says, don't ask with doubt. Now, this can be read con- in a confusing way. Doubting, like Tripp's grandfather, is a normal part of the life of faith. But he's talking about a kind of doubting that is hedging your bet. It's superstitious faith. It's a, being a double-minded man or woman. Yes, there's a God, but there's other things. I might as well pray to God because maybe that could help as well. It's that kind of doubting as opposed to the kind of temptation that Tripp's grandfather was experiencing on his deathbed. He's saying, ask God, be God-focused, and God will provide. You know, James has a bad reputation. The reformer Martin Luther is said to have torn it out of his Bible. He said it wasn't worthy of the canon because it, he thought it taught works righteousness. It, all these commands of James telling you what to do, he thought it was telling you how to get saved. But I don't think that it lacks grace at all. And right here in this, this um, bit about wisdom is a good example. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Right here we see the grace of God in, in the fifth verse of this. God's grace is there helping you without reproach. He will help you through the trial. You ask him and you find that God is ready to help. And if you jump ahead to verse 17 as well, James says every good and every, uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That doesn't sound like works righteousness. You are saved by faith. And that's clear in here. So I understand reformers sometimes have to swing the pendulum really far to make their point. Martin Luther was wrong, though, to tear this out of the canon. James is useful, and it is t- it's teaching sanctification, how to become like Christ, not so much how to, how to become a Christian. And so if we get that sorted, remember, he's writing to believers and, who are suffering, and he's saying, life is hard, but God is good. He's gracious, and he provides. So in verse 12, he then says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. What's interesting about that is most people, it seems to me in this life, are looking for just the next milestone. If you're a a school student, you're hoping to graduate high school, maybe get into college. If you're coming through college, you're thinking, I just want to get a job, or maybe I want to get married. Or if you're in your career, I want to get that promotion to that level so I can have that much money. Or, and retirement's always interesting, those of you that are retired. I was at a retirement party last night, and it's like, what's the next thing you're looking for, right? 
What I want to suggest is the crown of life is not in this life. And so all of us should be looking far enough ahead beyond all those things and then, and then retrofitting our lives going in light of the fact that because I'm a Christian, there is glory that's going to be shared with me. How do I use this life for God's purposes? What is this trial that I'm experiencing doing to prepare my character for the thing that is to come? Now here, I mean, this is basically a beatitude, right? Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. And he's picking up language that sounds a whole lot like both that teaching we heard from Luke's gospel and the version from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be joyful. There's Jesus saying it. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So again, Jesus is saying, look ahead to heaven. Look ahead to the crown, the glory that is to come, and and rejoice because that's already secure. That helps you in the moment of trial to back up and have the big vantage point. Okay, God, I don't like this trial. How are you using it? How can I lean into it rather than try and escape it and receive what you have for me? Now, it's easy to say that when I don't have some huge trial going on, and I know some of your stories. Some of you have huge trials that you're in right now. And I'm saying that God is good even though the trial is hard and life is hard because James is saying that and Jesus is saying that. And I know how the story ends and I know where you're headed. If you're a Christian, you are secure. The universe is a perfectly safe place for your soul. Let that sink in. Now, verse 13, we get kind of an anatomy of sin and temptation, right? In verse 13, he's saying, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. By definition, a temptation is a trap set up to cause you to fall. It wants to have you stumble. Satan is the one who tempts. The world systems tempt. Sin that resides in you tempts. It wants to fail. God tests. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to grow. He wants you to get stronger. And so when you're experiencing temptation, don't ever say God is tempting me. God might be letting Satan tempt you, and God wants it to be a test to strengthen you. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way through it so that you can stand up within the trial. So God will even use the enemy's temptations in your life to help you grow stronger in faith. All of these things are useful And then he gives this anatomy of of how the temptation works. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It starts with our desires. Do we desire God or do we desire other things? Well, yes, both are there. And we're fighting with that all the time. I desire lots of things and they're not always the good things. And then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it grows up, leads to death. There's this progression moving in one direction, and God wants us to go in the other direction. He wants us to go to life. He wants us to repent of sin, to get stronger at resisting temptation. And that's a lifetime process that we can cooperate with God in, and he wants us to. It's interesting to see how the trial can correct our, even our desires and start to fix and reform and heal our affections, have them be on the right thing and not just the worldly thing. You know, um, Tim Keller, the, the author and pastor that was in New York for all those years, has cancer as well, and he's published a little bit about this, 
And it, when it first came out, he posted something, I think, on Twitter, and he made the statement that this is a weaning of process, process, where God is weaning him off certain earthly things by preparing him for what is to come. I thought, man, that is so mature. Oh, to have that kind of faith in that moment and recognize that God is going to use this sickness even to prepare me for what is to come by weaning me off of affections for things that are temporary. That's tough. And James here is inviting single-mindedness instead of a double-minded person. I'm trying to be a Christian but also be worldly. And he wants us to be single-minded and not compartmentalize our life into these are the God things and then this is the other things I do. He wants it to come into everything. Now let me close with just a story from a, um, an intern that was one of my first interns in South Carolina. Uh, a, a young, beautiful girl who had endometriosis and it was a real problem and she struggled with this and it caused her some debilitating things and we went to a prayer and healing service one night and um, there were a couple hundred people there maybe 250 people there it was at a nearby church and it was a service that had oftentimes seen healing and the lord was often present there and they had prayer ministry like we do during communion and um and the prayer team had a word from the lord it was interesting they said you know tonight we're trusting the Lord's going to do some things and help people and heal people. But I think there's, and the prayer minister said, one of our prayer team got a word that there's somebody here with endometriosis, named the condition that the Lord wants you to receive prayer. So like the people from our youth group, we all immediately turned and looked at this girl, right? Stared at her and she looked terrified and she wouldn't go up for prayer. Never did, never went up for prayer, refused to. And her reasoning was, this sickness has caused me to walk closely with God. I've learned that his grace is sufficient. I, I, don't, I don't want to go get prayer for it because I want to keep having more of God in my life. Now, I disagreed with her and I said, he can find lots of other trials. Let him heal you of this one. But, you know, she was, whatever, 20 years old and was fairly new in her faith. But, but the point was, she started to recognize how valuable the trial was, so much so that she was reticent to let it go. That's how powerful and good these trials can be in our good God's hands. Life is hard, but God is good. So seek God in the trial, the big ones and the small ones, whatever you're dealing with right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, James challenges us immediately and in some really tough spots. And so we come to you, our gracious and good Father, and ask for help. Help to understand this. Help to have enough of a vantage point to receive the trials that you allow into our lives. Lord, would you mature us? And Lord, if there's anyone in here who has never trusted you, I pray that in the trials in their life, they would cry out and find you good and ready to help. Lord, have mercy on us to be mature enough to receive the trials in our life by faith. And may your joy shine brightly and lead others to you as well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we proclaim.